there's a lot of talk uh, in Austin, Texas about being spiritual but not religious. Have you heard this? Uh, or sometimes they say, well, I, I'm spiritual, but uh, I, I don't like organized religion, things of, things of that nature. Um, I was uh, at a, a book club this past week, and uh, I wanted it to be a part of this little book club conversation because it was uh, about a book that uh, the setting was in western Massachusetts, and that's where we, we lived for like 22 years, and I thought, that'd be cool. And then when I got into the book, I realized it's like horror slash weird. And, and so it's, it's like got ghosts in it and seances. And this is very like spiritual, although the nature part of it is pretty awesome in the way it's described is spot on. So I'm in this book club discussion, um, and I'm listening to people talk about spiritual things. And all of it is just internal. It's just how they feel. And so it, it was a lot of incoherent thoughts about what's in the unseen, what's uh, spiritual. And it's all based on me and my feelings. Uh, honestly, some Christians follow Jesus this way, where it's all based on me and my feelings. They're spiritual, but not religious. They might even uh, speak with disdain toward doctrine or anything that might resemble some kind of a, a creed or a belief system. Uh, that said, many in the church are religious and not very spiritual. They have some sort of intellectual grasp of the Christian faith, but they lack any kind of experiential component. I think this is in large part what a lot of non-Christians are reacting against, is they feel like they've already tried church, and church is religious and not spiritual. And they're thinking, but I'm a spiritual being, and I want to be spiritual, so I guess the church can't give me what I need, and so I'm going to go and try to find that somewhere else. Some church folks are reacting against the spiritual nature of people outside the church, and are sometimes saying, I'm just going to double down on the intellectual stuff. I'm going to run as fast as I can away from the spiritual. The Apostle Paul, I think, would make both of these people really mad because he's incredibly spiritual and he's religious. When I use that word religious, I, I mean he has an intellectual faith. He has a clear understanding of belief and practice, and he holds fast to that, but he also has a strong sense of experiencing the divine, experiencing God uh, as, a, as a living, breathing God that he has a relationship with. This interaction with God, Christians often call prayer. And this is what Paul is doing here in this passage, which is another like long run-on sentence. It's very complicated, so it takes a little bit to unravel it. But this is a prayer. And... You see a prompt for his prayer, uh, you see a pattern for his prayer, and you see petitions in his prayer. So these are a little bit of handholds for you to hang on, prompt pattern and petition. So what's the prompt? Ephesians 1, verse 15, and I hope you will follow along with me uh, on page 917. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints... 
I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So the prompt for him is thankfulness. He's thankful for the Ephesians, and he's thankful for a couple of things. Uh, He's thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus, and he's thankful for their love for each other. This is a healthy church. The, the, The Ephesians are a healthy church. They have this ongoing, consistent faith in Jesus and this ongoing love for each other, and Paul is thankful for that. This is a healthy church. Healthy churches are Christ-centered. We say here at Ridgetop, we are seeking to be Christ-centered. It's because this is what the Bible would have us do. It's through Christ where the floodgates are opened to a relationship with God. There is no other gate to actually have a living relationship with God except through faith in Christ. And he's saying that the Ephesians have not only just initially believed in Jesus and been brought into this relationship with God, but they're consistently, continually believing in Jesus. They're relying on Jesus as their king. They're relying on Jesus as their savior. And Paul sees that and he says, I am thankful. I am grateful to God that you're continually relying on the savior king, Jesus. But they're also displaying a love for, quote, the saints, That is, the members of that local church. This isn't just a nebulous sort of theoretical love. I love humanity or I love all Christians kind of a love. This is a a love for the people in their local church. Not just the ones they like. Not just the ones they get along with or have affinity for. All the saints. And Paul is looking at this, this ongoing faith in Jesus, this ongoing persevering love, within a local church, and he's saying, I'm grateful. Side note, part of what he's saying is it's a miracle. It's a miracle to wake up every day and still be a Christian and loving your brothers and sisters in the church. It's a miracle. I probably wouldn't have said that when I was 25. I would have thought, how hard is this? Keep believing in Jesus. Keep loving my brothers and sisters in the church. Now, I'm 55, I'm like, it's tough. It's tough. It's a miracle. And so I find myself grateful that I'm waking up in the morning, still a Christian, still loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are believing in Jesus, and they're still loving me. So this thankfulness is this prompt that gets Paul praying. And it's not the only prompt for prayer, but I think it's a good one. Thankfulness is a really good prompt for prayer, partly because it acknowledges that God is already at work in the world. It's like he's looking back at the past and saying, wow, look at what God's already done. And so it it, it doesn't uh, act as if God shows up when Paul starts praying, that God's been aloof, that God's been distant until Paul prays. No, he's saying, I see you, God. I see you already at work, and I'm grateful. For that, And it prompts him to pray about what God might be doing in, in the future. Um, it, th- this prompt of thankfulness also causes us to, to piggyback in regard to our prayer on what God's already doing. It's like we're entering the flow of something that's already started. We're not the origination of this. God is. He's already been working in the Ephesians. He's already been 
consistently giving them grace to, to believe in Christ and to love one another. And Paul sees that, and he's like, I want to jump into the flow of this work of God, and I'm going to pray along the lines of this flow. Now, it doesn't mean we shouldn't pray about situations where we're struggling to see uh, the work of God, but I think it is very helpful to first look at what God is doing and then join Him in the way that we pray. And then another way that thankfulness is, is a helpful way to start your prayers is it, it reveals a heart that's not greedy and bitter, right? I know sometimes I can be praying to God in a greedy, bitter way, like, I need this now. Why won't you give it to me, right? And, and when you start with thankfulness, is that, that, that's, you just can't do that. You're looking back, you're saying, God, I see you're, you're good. You're, you're all-powerful. You're all wise. Look at, look at what you've done already. And now I'm going to piggyback on this prayer and, and, and participate in the work that you're doing in the world. I think Jesus himself teaches us to pray this way, right? He starts in his model prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's, he, he's saying my prayer is inside this larger story. God, you're king of the universe. You are actively working in the universe. And now I get to participate inside this larger plan. And so Jesus teaches us to, to think in that way. So now that we're prompted to pray, then there's a pattern for the prayer. Look at Ephesians 1, verse 17, the first part. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the Spirit. Now, he's already been speaking about God as a trinity, right? And last week, if you were here, we saw him talking about Father, Son, Spirit. Here he's doing it again. And he's, he's praying to, the, to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then he's asking that the, God the Father through Jesus would give uh, the Spirit, the Spirit of God. Paul is following a common pattern for prayer that you find throughout the New Testament. This praying to God the Father through the Son by the Spirit. Jesus himself, again, teaches us this pattern of prayer. We look at the model prayer. How does it start? Our Father. He's training his disciples to pray to the Father. In places like John 14 and 15 and 16, Jesus multiple times says, pray to the Father in my name. It's his way of saying, pray to the Father through the Son. And it doesn't always have to be this way. And in fact, in the Bible, it's not always this way. But it does affirm the gospel. That's a very gospelly way of praying. That you're saying, I would not have access to God the Father if it wasn't for the work of the Son on the cross. Because of my belief in Christ, I now have access to God the Father, and I'm being assisted in that praying by God the Holy Spirit. And so this praying to God uh, in this way, it's, it's not like magic words, nor is it dead doctrine. This is a, an encounter with a living God who is one God and three persons. We're being invited into the Trinity, so to speak. We're sort of being swallowed up in ultimate reality, which is God. God the Father, God the Son, 
and God the Spirit. So now we've been prompted to pray, and then we have a pattern for our prayer. And now we finally get to the petitions. I find myself, oftentimes, and I also find just Christians in general, oftentimes praying for physical needs. Uh, Praying I'd get over my cold. Pray that I'd find a place to live. Pray I'd find a new job. Pray I'd find, I'd, I'd have more energy. These all came this week. These were all requests. And I actually think there's nothing wrong with praying about those things. You should pray for those things. I think it actually reveals a a humble dependence on God. In fact, again, in the model prayer, Jesus says pray for daily bread. I mean, how much more material can you get than that? Hey, God, I need food like today. Can you help me? And so we should pray for those things, but we ought not stop there. We shouldn't stop praying for material things thing. We are not just material in our own existence, right? We're embodied souls and soul bodies. Our spiritual life is very important. And in fact, our spiritual life can like supersede uh, our material life. Like here's, here's an example, a couple of examples for Apostle Paul. Philippians 4, Paul is thanking the Philippians for sending him provision. He's in prison and he needs food and clothing, and and they've met those physical needs. And he says this in Philippians 4, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So he's saying, I'm so glad that you cared about my physical needs and that you met them. But then he goes on. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need. What? Paul, I thought you were in need and you were grateful. What, what, what? And then he explains, for I have learned to be in whatever situation I am to be content. Now he's talking about spiritual stuff. Right? I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So you see him talking about this material needs that have been met, but also this spiritual need that Christ has met in the midst of his abundance and his need throughout his journey with Jesus. He says it another way in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, we do not lose heart, though our outer self, he's talking about physical self, is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He's talking about our spiritual self. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see him talking about both the material, which matters, but also the immaterial and how he's uh, praying in both realms. So we should pray that our friend would get over their cold, but we should also pray that our friend would become more aware of their limitations and how sin has affected this whole world and rely on Jesus even more in the midst of a cold. We should pray for our friend to find a place to live. And also that they would be more aware that this is not their home. That no amount of, of finding great apartments or great homes or owning a home, or it, that's not home. And that they would have more of, of, of an awareness of their true home with God. That you should pray that, yes, your friends should find a job. And also become more aware that God, God is their ultimate provider. 
And that through this time of, of seeking a job and trying to figure this out, that they would rely even more on God their Father. And then, yes, we should pray for our friend to have more energy and that they be more aware that power originates in God. <laughs> True power comes from God and this reliance on God for power, both material power and spiritual power. So we're, we're praying these things because we understand that there's both material and a spiritual component to living life. So he, he gets to these petitions, and the petitions in this particular prayer are spiritual in nature. Again, doesn't mean this is the only thing you pray, but this is what he prays for the Ephesians. So look at Ephesians 1, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So Paul is asking the Father through the Son that the Spirit, see, you got that Trinity that we talked about earlier, would give the Ephesians, and he, and he lists some things. Uh, one thing is wisdom, or some translations say insight. And it really that they would be able to understand reality, what is real. And that would include what we've been talking about so far, that reality is, yes, what you can see, but it's also what you cannot see. Both of those are real. And so he's asking God, would you give them a spirit, the spirit, to help them understand what is true, what is real about this life? And then also revelation. Revelation is a different kind of knowledge where uh, there's a revealing of something that was always there, but it was hidden, and now it's being revealed. That's, that's miraculous. And so he's asking that the Spirit would give them this revelation, that they would see something that was hidden to them in uh, who God is, and uh, that, that the Spirit would accomplish. The, you can think of this as different kinds of sight, right? This kind of wisdom, insight, sight, and this like revelation, this uncovering what was once hidden, mystery. Then he gives this little illustration to, to explain what he's talking about. He says that uh, the Spirit would enlighten the eyes of the heart. I'm mixing of metaphors there, but um, the heart, biblically speaking, is the center of the human being. It, it's, it's the immaterial, mystical center. It's the place from which your feelings originate from, your thoughts originate from, uh, your decisions of your will originate from. Uh, it's integrated into your body and your brain and all that stuff, but from a Christian perspective, you have a non-material center, your heart, or sometimes your, called your soul. And so from that place is where he's asking God to activate something new through the work of the Spirit. And that would include this seeing what's real and further revelation of things that were once hidden from them that are now being given to them. And he uses this word, this, this word translated knowledge, is uh, being translated from the Greek word epinosis. So gnosis is just kind of standard knowledge. But epinosis is like a focused knowledge, an enhanced knowledge. And so it's like they do know some of who God is. They do have some wisdom, insight, revelation. But God, uh, Paul is praying they would have more. 
And it would be even more focused and it would be more advanced and that the Holy Spirit would accomplish that at their divine center. And then he gets even more specific about the things that he's wanting God to reveal, to unveil in their hearts. He says in the second part of verse 18, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So here he's like, I want them to have hope. All right, so, so hope. Hope is like this confident expectation. It is, it is a futuristic posture. You're, you're looking forward, and you're having hope in what's going to happen in the future. Now, remember he was thanking, them, uh, thanking God for their faith and their love, and now he's asking for hope. And these faith, hope, and love, this is something that, that Paul talks about a lot. These are kind of his favorite three uh, Christian attributes. And so he's already thanked God for faith and love, and now he's saying, God, would you give them hope? Would you give them this future expectation of, that is confident in what you're going to do? This is why he mentions the riches of their glorious inheritance. That's futuristic in its uh, posture. And they're going to need that hope if they're going to keep maintaining their faith in Jesus and their love for each other. Because you get worn out. <laughs> you get worn out continually having faith in Jesus and loving each other if you have no hope. And so you, you need this. Uh, and he understands that, that the disciple of Christ needs this kind of, of, of hope. And I don't know how many times I, I've seen this where someone is thinking about sort of giving up on Jesus and giving up on the church. And I remember having a conversation with uh, a man who was thinking about divorcing his wife. And it had been a, a long-time marriage. It had been so difficult. And he came out to see us. We spent a few days together. And he said, you know, it's just been really hard. We've tried counseling. We've tried this. We've tried that. And, you know, we're living in the same house, but we're just, we're, we're struggling. We're unhappy. And I want to be happy. And I said, well, there's going to be a day when you're going to stand before Jesus this is, the, this is the day that matters, okay? You need to think about that day and how you can honor him in the way you're living now, staying in there with your, your spouse and with your kids. And it's going to be worth it. Maybe not in this life, but it's definitely going to be worth it in the life to come. And I gave him this, this pump-up speech, right? And he was like, yeah, you're right, you're right. And then three, three weeks later, I get a phone call. He's like, nah, I'm, I'm not doing it. And it's because he didn't believe that hope. <laughs> Didn't believe it would be worth it. Was so attached to the here and the now. It wasn't willing to suffer for that futuristic hope. So you've got to have that hope if you're going to stay the course in believing in Christ and loving those in the church and doing that over the long haul. And the Apostle Paul knows that, right? And he also knows that they're going to need power, right? Because, again, it's hard. This is difficult. And so verse 19, he says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. And this is like power times three. He uses three words that are related to power. Uh, one is uh, dunamis, which is like potential power. It's, it's, like, it's like he looks at God, he goes, wow, the potentiality of God. <laughs> this is amazing. 
But then he's, he's talking about the, the, the working of his great is another Greek word being translated, and it's energia, where we get the word energy. And, and in that word, it's like I see the power being displayed. So there's potential power, and then there's power displayed. It's like, wow, this is amazing. This is real power. And then a, a final word, uh, kratos, which means more comprehensive power, that his uh, providence, his sovereignty, it's pervasive into every nook and cranny of reality, of existence. And so he, he's looking at this, and he's just in awe of the potential power, uh, the working out of power, and the comprehensive nature of this power. And he's, he's praying that they would know this kind of power. Now, how might we get in touch with that kind of power? And I, I think if you ask the average Austinite, how do I get in touch with the power of the divine? They say, well, just sit in the room by yourself and meditate and wait for kind of a surge of power to come, like, shock you, right? And then you can get up and kind of go about your day. Well, this, this is not what the Apostle Paul <laughs> says to do. Look at, look at how he says to get in touch with the power. He says in verse 20, the power, so in 19, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So he, he, he talks about the power of God being displayed in Christ, and he starts with the resurrection, right? And so up to the resurrection, God had done some pretty powerful things. I mean, created the world, created the universe. That's pretty impressive, I'd say. That's very powerful. Um, you see miracles in the Old Testament, like the flood or stopping the sun from, from uh, you know, in like mid, mid-sky, splitting the Red Sea. I mean, all that. Very impressive. Um, Jesus himself showed a tremendous amount of power, walking on water, stilling storms, feeding 5,000 with a few loaves and fishes, even revived Lazarus from the dead. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And so how, how would God ever top that? Well, the resurrection. The resurrection. This is the ultimate display of God's power, which is partly why Paul mentions this first, nothing compares, nothing compares to the power exerted in the resurrection of Jesus. God breaks into a messed up world in a unique way in the resurrection. And this in breaking, it results not just in the, in the resurrection of, of, of Jesus, but he's reversing the curse of sin that human beings had lived under since Adam. And so Jesus, who, who died under this sin, which at first looked like every other human being, it's like, oh, he died, well, yeah, big deal. But then when he resurrects, meaning he raises to never die again, it tells us that sin has been paid for and that Christ is the victor over that sin. But he doesn't stop at resurrection. Right? He continues to tell the story of what happened post-resurrection, which was Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, meaning that Jesus is not just 
overcome sin and death in his own self. He's overcome it cosmically. His throne room is above all. And he says this, right? He says he's ruling, he's reigning over every power, every dominion. There are no rivals in his kingship. This is the kind of power that's being displayed in Christ. This is the kind of power that Paul is praying that the Ephesians would get in touch with because he's also saying that this power is being displayed in the church. In that passage I just read, Christ's kingship, yes, is over all of reality, but it's also being displayed uniquely inside the church among his saints, his adopted children, his body. And so Paul will get in a lot more particulars in future chapters, which is going to be fun. Um, but here we see the big picture of Jesus resurrected, ascended to the right hand of the Father as king of the universe, and now uniquely connected to the church and working in and through the church. There's a sense in which he's talking about the universal church, of course, every Christian convert on the planet, but there's also a sense in which this is being experienced in the local church. This is why that membership thing matters. It, it actually matters to join yourself to a local church. You're experiencing Christ's rule and reign, his, his power being displayed, which is a wild plan A, right? And there is no plan B, through local expressions of the church universal. We have been and are being empowered to be the saints in Austin, Texas, as is every other local church. It, 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 it's mind-blowing. But this is what he's saying is true of the Ephesians, and it's certainly what is true of us today. So I want to ask a couple questions. Are you spiritual but not religious? I want to encourage you to become both because you can't truly be spiritual without believing the ancient truth of the gospel, that Christ, the one who is fully human, fully God, who died in your place on the cross so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be reconnected with the true God. Believing on that, yes, truth claims, yes, ancient, yes, perhaps something you've heard many, many times, but it is the gateway into a true spiritual relationship with the one true God. I also want to ask, are you religious but not spiritual? That, that maybe you're thinking, I'm just, I go through the motions. I do what I think is the right thing. I don't even know if there's a living God. I'm telling you, you want to be both. <laughs> and, and if you come to him, yes, doubling down on the truth claims, absolutely. But longing for, praying for the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, and to ask others to pray the same, to actually spiritually encounter a living God. I don't know how you follow Jesus without that. And in fact, many don't. <laughs> they don't last because it's not a living relationship with the one true God. Uh, we are reminded of these realities when, when we come to the table here. Um, Taking communion, this is something the church has done for 2,000 years. It's really simple, um, but 
It's something that we do over and over and over and over again. It is a ritual. But God does something <laughs> when we take the bread and the cup. There, there's a spiritual encounter that's occurring. Just like when the word is preached or when we sing songs of praise that make much of Christ, the spirit is activated, the spirit is working in, a, in, in our midst. And so while, yes, this is something that is part of religion, it's part of ritual, it's also the means that God has chosen for us to encounter him. And so on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the night before his death, he took bread and after he blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. In the same way, after he'd taken the cup, he let them know that this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. It's a reminder again and again and again, just the basics of our faith. And so, you know, we say it with words, but we even display it with this simple little bread and cup. But it's a reminder again and again and again and again and again of the core beliefs of the church for 2,000 years. And it's through believing in this, these core beliefs that we access the one true God in a spiritual way. So if you are a Christ follower, I want to encourage you uh, to participate in this. You're welcome to the table. If you're not yet a Christ follower, maybe you're interested, I would encourage you to talk to somebody after the service. Uh, I'm happy to talk to, uh, to you. Maybe there's a friend here that you know is a Christian and, and you can reach out and talk to them. But begin to explore what this means uh, to be a Christ follower. So let's pray. God, we do want the eyes of our hearts open. We, we do want to encounter you, the one true God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Thank you that you made a way for us to come in, in contact with you, to come in relationship with you. God, we marvel at the cost that was paid for that to occur. And are reminded of that as we take this bread and this cup. And we pray your blessing over it. Pray that you would bless our time of worship as we take it together. And that you, again, would open the eyes of our hearts to these realities. That we would, as the Ephesians uh, were prayed for by Paul, that our hearts would, would be able to understand both wisdom and, and revelation. And that uh, you would accomplish that in the power of your spirit. And so we pray, again, your blessing over this time and over this congregation, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.